Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class. In today's podcast, we're going to be looking at Lord's Day 8 in the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 24 and 25. Question 24 asks, how are these articles divided? And the answer is into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. So the Catechist has concluded Lord's Day 7 in question 23 by referring to the Apostles' Creed. He describes the Apostles' Creed as the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith in question 24. He now begins Lord's Day 8 with a reference to the three-part division of the, the Apostles' Creed, noting that each of the parts speak of one of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now, because the instructor is careful and accurate with his teaching, he then has to explain to us why this is so. So in question 25, he asks, Since there is but one divine being, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son and Holy Ghost? The answer he gives is because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Yet for us to say that God is one and three and three and one is well beyond the powers of human comprehension, for it contradicts our human sin-tainted reason. Now some will argue that our theology always ought to be simple, because simplicity is beautiful. But God has chosen to reveal enough of himself for us to know sufficiently about him, until we meet him in glory and when we will understand it all more fully. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 9 to 12, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, as also I am known. So in this lesson we're going to look very briefly at the Trinity. The word Trinity is a Latin word, Trinitas, and it means threeness. The word itself is not in the Bible, but the concept is there, and it is one of the most important aspects of what God has chosen to reveal to us about himself, for there can be no real blessing, either upon ourselves or upon our work, if we neglect any one of the persons in the Godhead. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast.
Let's begin by looking at the idea of the Trinity in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is only one God. Every Jewish child was taught to recite the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 to 7, the famous words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. We acknowledge with the writer Moses that there is only one God, one holy, all-powerful, unchanging, and ever-present God. And yet, in the New Testament, there is more than one who is that God. Now let me explain that. Look with me please at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. There we read these words. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The word which is translated God in our English Bible is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's actually the plural term for God. Yet the word for created is singular, a singular verb with a plural noun. Well, surely some grammatical error there. No, it happens again. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, let us make man after our image, our likeness. But there's only one God. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. But there's only one God. This singular plural reference to God continues right throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1 to 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried on to, the, uh, to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1 to 6, when Moses encountered the burning bush, the angel, the word angel there simply means announcer or sent one. In the Old Testament, we often think of that as what we call a theophany, a pre-incarnation revelation of the logos, the pre-incarnate person of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So let's go back. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1 to 6, 
when Moses encountered the burning bush, the angel of the Lord spoke to him from within the bush. But it was God that spoke. Look at this very carefully. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses. There's someone sent by God who is, in fact, God himself. Okay, so there is one God, but there are more than one who are God, and the question is, how many? Let's consider for a moment the ironic blessing. In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 24 to verse 26, we hear it said very often at the end of services, at baptisms and at funerals and so on. It would be said, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. It's the love of God, the love of the Father. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The wonderful grace of God, which we find in God the Son. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. The internal working of God in the human heart done by the Holy Spirit. Three mentions of the Lord. The Lord bless thee. The Lord be gracious unto thee. The Lord work within thee to give thee peace. Three references references to the work of God. Three times did the seraphim in the temple in Isaiah 6 cry, Holy? There is only one God. But there are three persons who are that one God. Now what about the Trinity in the New Testament? Well, I've said that this is a very short introduction to the doctrine of the Trinity. We could never cover it all in a short podcast. We'll just take a quick look. At 1 John 5 and verse 7, it says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So the New Testament always clarifies what the Old Testament suggests and foreshadows. We see clearly in the New Testament God the Father. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. The Father is God. And we see clearly that God is the Son in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. John writes, We know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And Paul agrees with that. Countering the arguments of the proto-Gnostics in Colossians 2 and verse 9, he writes, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is telling us that everything that is in God can be summed up in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word fullness there is an ancient maritime shipping term. When the ancient ship was loaded and the crew was aboard, the word used to describe the condition of the ship was a word that denotes the ship's manifest and complement is entire and complete. So everything that you can say about God can be said about Jesus, about his Son, the fullness of the Godhead 
dwells bodily in him. So God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. We baptize people in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, he lied to God. Jesus said that all manner of blasphemy could be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yet you could only blaspheme against deity. Very briefly then, in the New Testament, God is one, and God is in three persons. So let's just make some basic statements about relationships within the Trinity. Right here, the Savoy Declaration will help us. John Owen, writing with others in the Savoy Declaration, says, In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor preceding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. That's in Savoy, chapter 2 and part 3. What's he saying? He's saying basically that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. All three speak of themselves as I. That they are distinguished from each other. The Father was never begotten and never proceeds. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, but never proceeds. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So within the Godhead there is priority, but not superiority. So we may proclaim that within the Trinity the three personas thereof are co-eternal and co-equal. Theologians talk about this as being the ontological Trinity. And that priority within the Trinity is reflected in all of the works of God. The Father decrees that there would be a created universe. The Son enacts that decree, and the Holy Spirit breathes life into it. In salvation, God elects and gives you to Christ to be his. Christ purchases your redemption on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies that saving work to your heart, breathing new life into you, regenerating your spirit. How can we understand this? This is God. It is a glorious mystery. All that we can do in response to these things is to do what Isaiah did when confronted with the thrice holy God, and that is to fall to our knees and to worship him.
Of course, not everyone who claims to be within the visible church believes in the Trinity. And we have to be aware of error. Deviations from Trinitarianism have always existed in the church. That's why the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was convened, primarily because of the error being taught by Arius of Alexandria, a man who basically taught that Christ was a created being. Nicaea formulated a systematic statement of Trinitarian doctrine, stating that Christ is of the same substance with God the Father, homoousius. So we need to be aware of polytheism. Polytheism is a belief in many gods. It's found in Mormonism. Now, no matter what they may tell you, the Mormons are not Christians. The Mormons actually believe that Jesus is Lucifer's brother. The Mormons believe that God the Father is a God called Elohim, who lives with his spirit waves near a star called Colan. The Mormons believe that Elohim was once a man like us, who progressed to be a god, and so we too can progress to be gods. Now this is not Christianity, this is a cult. Then there's tritheism, a belief in three separate gods. But we know that the Bible tells us that there is only one god. Then there is monarchianism where dispensationalists, for example, will believe in a subordination within the Godhead, where the Father is senior to the Son and the Holy Spirit is junior to both. More commonly, we find a thing called modalism, like the oneness Pentecostals, the Church of God, for instance, who believe that the persons of the Trinity are simply God acting in different modes. So at Calvary, God is acting in the mode of the Son, while at Pentecost God is acting in the mode of the Spirit, for example. There is nothing new about this error. It was common in the early church. Tertullian wrote an apology designed to counter it in his book Contra Praxius. If you want to know which churches are modalist, it's very simple. Look in their statement of faith on the internet, and if they say God is manifest in three persons, you've got a fairly clear idea that they're modalists. So God is not intrinsically three and one and one and three, but he is one person, they say, who simply manifests himself in three different modes. That's error. That's heresy. So there's polytheism and tritheism, monarchianism, modalism, And of course Unitarianism, like we find within the non-subscribing Presbyterian churches, who, although they are not all Unitarians, many of them believe that Jesus was just a good man, who died on the cross to provide us with a good example that we can use to fashion our own lives. That's entirely pointless, of course, because we're sinners. And we can never hope to live as Christ did, for he was sinless and perfect and Such salvation, salvation by futile works, is no salvation at all. Oh, yeah.
So right away you can see the importance of this doctrine. Some people might ask, what has the doctrine of the Trinity got to do with me? I'm just a simple Christian. I'm just an ordinary believer. I just believe in Jesus who saved me from my sins. Why should we bother trying to understand these complicated doctrines? Why should we teach it in our churches? But remember the words of John Owen in the Savoy Declaration. He says, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him? If the foundation of our communion with God is removed, then our fellowship with God is totally destroyed. Well, yes, I'm saying what you think I'm saying. If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you can't be a Christian. If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you can't go to heaven. And what of those who do otherwise? What of those churches who refuse to baptise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost? Those churches who baptise Christians in the beautiful name of Jesus? They're denying the Trinity. Would you go to support them in their error? Maybe you'd just go to a concert or a praise night in one of their churches. I wouldn't. I consider that this is such a fundamental issue that it is so basic to our faith and to the grounds of our understanding of Christian truth that I would do nothing to give any credence whatsoever to a church which would undermine it for whatever reason. You can't be saved without knowing God, and God is a trinity. Here's how important this is to us. It's important because of my relationship with God, because the Father is my Father, and because the Son is my elder brother, and because the Holy Spirit is my counsellor. It's important in my prayer life, because we pray to the Father through the Son, who is our great High Priest, whoever lives to intercede for us, helped by the Holy Spirit who prompts us in our prayers, and even when we can't pray, when we lie in death's clutches, and our final minutes are come, and our mouths are stopped, then likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The words of Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. The Trinity is important to me because of my relationship with God. The Trinity is important to me because of my prayer life. The Trinity is important to me because of my attitude to the Scriptures, for it is a God-given book given to us by our Heavenly Father to guide us and to reveal us to Himself. It is a Christ-exalting book. It is a Holy Spirit-inspired book. Each person of the Trinity playing their part in our relationship with God, in our prayer and communion with God, and in our reading of God's Word. So you can see, the Trinity is of great doctrinal importance. It is of great personal importance to the believer. It is a doctrine which must frequently be preached in our pulpits and fearlessly proclaimed and vigorously defended. And when we think of the Trinity, and when we hear the Trinity being spoken of, it should inspire our hearts to praise 
and to sing with the angels in Isaiah's day. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. Thanks for listening to the Catechism class today. If you have any questions you'd like to ask, comments you'd like to make, if you'd like to contact us and have a chat, then please do so. Contact me, Bob McAvoy, at AOL.com or join our Heidelberg Catechism discussion group on Facebook and you can message directly and we can talk about these matters. Thanks for listening. And we'll have another catechism lesson for you next week, God willing.